Well, hey guys, it's good to see you again. Aaron Bart back with another chapel following last week, um, but I hope you're staying healthy. Hope you're doing well, and I hope God's giving you surprising little moments of joy, things to um, look back on, things to look forward to. And it's the distance between those two things um, that I want to spend time talking with you about today. Earlier this month, which seems like forever ago at this point in time, um, I guess I should say last month, it's April 1, but at the beginning of March, um, I had the incredible pleasure of getting to coach or be a part of the coaching staff for my son's um, hockey team. And we won JV State together. And so my son and I are on the ice afterwards, and there's only two reasons helmets and gloves end up all over the ice in hockey, and that's either you won a championship or there's a bench-clearing brawl. And this was for the good reason that we had just won a championship, and it was just a sweet moment to celebrate together. And yet at the same time, um, I'm hoping already the next day, right, like as you go back and you tell the stories, that that's not the, the pinnacle of his accomplishments, either athletic or otherwise. Um, we're hoping we don't sort of peak out already at that point in time in life. Rather, especially at this stage of life, we're constantly navigating that space between who I am and who I'm becoming. It causes us to reflect back on the past, but it makes us very future-minded people, as we should be. When I taught Core 100, um, our class called um, Identity, Kingdom, and Calling, one of the assignments I had in my class was asking each of the students to write the letter of reference they would want me to write for them when they graduated four years later. It was interesting to see the key descriptors inside those papers of what they wanted people to say about them by the time their whole college education was done. And so the second question I, of course, had to ask them was, then how do you think you get there? Right? There's the distance, and we were reading through John Ortberg's book, um, also at the time in Spiritual Formation, of uh, the me I want to be. Um, it's something he calls gap control. And I want to actually quick draw this out for you a minute. So if this is our moment in time now, and this is future you, Pick the time frame that you're thinking you want to traverse within this, whether it's just this sort of weird interrupted time that we're in the middle of in this global health pandemic, or maybe it's the next major milestone goal in life, completing college or something. So you have the space between where you are now and where you're going. Or another way to put it, you have the me you are and the me you want to be. So let's say this is the me I want to be. I want to be, well, let's hopefully happier on the other side. And um, well, if all of my goals get met, hopefully also maybe a little more muscular. So there's the happy, <laughs> more muscular me on the other side um, of this. And this is something that John Ortberg calls gap control. And how do you traverse the space between who you currently are and where you want to get to? You know, it's often been said the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And my favorite thing I've been talking about with my own kids in our house lately has been seizing this moment and this opportunity to um, see the opportunities in the middle of crisis. And if everything's going to get thrown up in the air, maybe there's some stuff that shouldn't get put back down in the same spots where it was before. Maybe there's a huge opportunity in this and that maybe I actually have a more likely opportunity to do become the me I want to be when everything gets thrown up in the air than when I'm stuck in the machine of a day-to-day -day life that just simply keeps on going. 
So what are you doing right now, right here? What are you doing with gap control and what are you putting in place? When I was teaching that class in Core 100 last year, um, we also listened to a sermon right in the first week. And it was all for freshmen, of course, coming in. And we listened to this sermon um, by a preacher named Erwin McManus. And he talked about um, the way Elijah had approached Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19. And I want to encourage you to read that text afterwards. It's a short little segment. And what happens is he comes to him, of course, and calls him and puts his mantle on him. And he's supposed to become like his successor. Um, but then he realizes that he's going to have to give everything up. So he says, let me go back and kiss my mom and dad goodbye. And of course, Elijah feels terrible about this and says, oh no, what have I done to you? But instead he goes back and there's no record, record of him going back and bidding his parents farewell or staying with them. Instead, he goes back to his yoke of oxen and his plow and he kills the animals and he breaks apart his plow and he lights it on fire and he cooks the meat and passes it out to everybody there. He set his past on fire in order to move forward. When you've taken your oxen and your plow and you've burned it, there's no going back anymore. And I thought about that again um, this week. Yesterday I was sitting down with my own kids. We were doing our family devotion time at home and we were working through Acts chapter 1. And I want to jump into that text with you now too. Okay, so when we have the passage up together, um, when it was all done, I asked my kids what they had all seen within it. So I'm going to challenge you to do the same thing. What stands out to you when you read it? And see if it's some of the same things I want to talk about afterwards as we pull this passage apart. But let me read for you for a minute the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. For me, one of the first things came across in the opening verse in my former book, Theophilus. I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. He's setting us up to understand that the rest of the book of Acts, even though Jesus is ascending, is still all about what Jesus is doing. We are still just as much in an era where Jesus is at work as it was when he walked his earthly ministry. Now, 
The other thing that stood out to us in the middle of this passage is Jesus is on the other side of the grave, but he's not doing like the good old boys talk, like living back the glory days. There's no reference in any of the resurrection appearances of Jesus sitting with his disciples being, hey, you guys remember that time I turned water into wine? Wasn't that amazing? Or you remember that time where there was that guy who was blind for his entire life and then he saw and then they were all angry at me because I healed him and there's none of that that happens in these stories. In fact, it's only, the, it's only the disciples who are still looking backwards. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Restore. They're still looking backwards. They've, their, their best friend has just rose from the grave, but they still haven't had their paradigm broken yet for what's actually possible. So instead of envisioning a newfound freedom in the ways that God was envisioning it for his people, because his son had now conquered the grave, all they're thinking back to is just the glory days of Israel. The disciples want Jesus to run on a Make Israel Great Again campaign. And Jesus wants to show them that there's just something so much different that he has in mind. That those who are going to come after him, that God's people will always be future-minded people. He tells them that they're going to be witnesses. And they're going to take the baton. And they're going to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And they're going to do all this because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them. Whenever you read um, the Gospels right before Jesus is crucified, He becomes obsessed in his language with the Holy Spirit, focusing their direction forward on what is to come. And he's so excited about the reality that God is not only going to walk beside them, God is actually going to dwell within them. And the way he describes it is even better than walking beside Jesus. So already now he's just about to go to the Father and he's not reliving back anything. He's still pointing forward. This is what my son saw in the text, and I never really focused on this before, and it's what I want you to see today. This same Jesus who has been taken from you will come back the same way you've seen him go into heaven. They're pointing him, the disciples, who are all stuck in this moment. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? They're still sitting there focusing on what's happening, and immediately the angels come and point them to focus on what is to come. The followers of Jesus are future-minded people. You know, even in this coming week, we're going to start celebrating this movement towards Easter, and we go back not only to the past, but actually the greatest, most pivotal moment in all of history. And we remember that and we celebrate that, but not because it's a historical moment, but because it has future implications. Nothing will ever be the same. I'm going to show you what I mean by this. One more text here, quick. All right, so the disciples get told to wait for the Holy Spirit. And what they do is they go to Jerusalem, just as they were told, and they're waiting there. When then the Holy Spirit shows up, something just absolutely dramatic happens and there's tongues of fire and they become empowered and the gifts of the Holy Spirit begin to get poured out and the church becomes mobilized and it just gets on the move throughout the rest of the book and we see that what Jesus began in the Gospels is is continued on in the lives of the disciples. But what strikes me the most about this is that just as the disciples couldn't see the possibility that Jesus could rise from the dead, now the gift that they get the gift of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus referred to it, 
becomes described in the Pentecost Sermon of Peter is really just a bigger imagination. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, sons, daughters, young men, old men, even servants, men and women, every gender, every age, every station in life, every socioeconomic strata and to the ends of the earth. This is poured out, baptized on everyone. What every believer in Jesus constantly needs is a bigger imagination. And the gift that Jesus promised shows up with an enlivened imagination, with eyes of faith that just don't see the reality that's in front of us, but sees the truer spiritual reality behind all things. That this is headed somewhere that all of, all of history has a tell-us. It's so often in these big critical moments where we actually come to terms with that in important ways. And so as we sit in this historical moment, for so many of us that seems just so unprecedented, and it is, but it isn't to Jesus. It was there at the beginning, is in this moment, and is there at the end. And it's so often, it's been the people of God throughout history and in history's hardest moments that have built hospitals, served one another, been cultural first responders. In this moment, is your imagination and your world getting smaller? Or even as you're confined to smaller spaces, is it possible for our imaginations to get bigger? Pray for all the possibilities that can still come from the one who defied all expectations and conquered the grave, whose eternal life courses through your veins, whose kingdom you are a part of, whose vision is still expanding ours. I hope you see it. I hope you're given moments of great hope, of deep abiding contentment, of the presence of Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.